Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 87 of the Retro Rents Retro Gaming Podcast. Uh, this is a super, super special episode for me uh, and for Nick. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast, especially since the early days, you will know uh, that this guest, the special guest that we've kept secret uh, until we recorded the episode, is one I have been just dying to get on the show and talk to. And um, I don't even want to spoil the surprise right now, to be honest with you. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to send you all into the episode with a guest I've been wanting to talk to since I first picked up a computer. I'm really excited. I hope you all enjoy it as much as we did. Nick and I could not have had more fun. And um, can't wait to hear what you all think about it. Enjoy the episode and our secret special guest. Say hello, Mr. Garriott. <laughs> hello, everybody. Yes, uh, this is uh, Richard Garriott, known to some of you uh, old-time gamers as Lord British, also. Oh, my gosh. This is so surreal. So surreal. Well, I want to be very, very conscious of your time. Um, we, you know, have a list of questions and stuff we'd love to talk to you about. And um, we'll just get get rolling on that. Not I mean, in, yeah. Obviously, we have a, you know, a lot of things we can talk about. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I've had, uh, as you well know, I've had sort of multiple concurrent, uh, you know, careers you might call them or activities you might sure. say, from game development to exploring the planet and off the planet to uh, uh, you know all all kinds of other adventures. So yeah, let's uh, talk about anything you like. Oh, awesome! Yeah, you're you're definitely a modern day Da Vinci. That's the only way I can really phrase it i mean we're talking to an astronaut much less a game designer that's like incredible to me i feel very lucky that um you know in in my uh, throughout my time as a game developer i've i've used the you know income i've made off of uh, of making games to take myself farther and farther into the unknown of the of the of the real world uh you know starting <clears throat> you know early on with uh you know, uh, exploring the seven continents, and, you know, dugout canoeing down the Amazon or hiking through wow. Africa or Southeast Asia. But then, um, you know, as I got more serious about it, you know, ultimately that led me now to travel. In fact, I'm the only person who has explored the geographic Earth from pole to pole, uh, as well as orbited above it in space. And a year ago this month, uh, dove down to the deepest point on Earth, down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So, uh, uh, that's my 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 one unique uh, exploring, uh, you, know, uh, you know, quadruple, you might say. That blows my mind, and this is actually hopping around the the sheet, so it's I, you know the order doesn't really matter. But you're you're hitting on something that's very near and dear to me. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Amazon Prime movies is Man on a Mission: Richard Garriott's Journey to the Stars. Uh, is there going to be a Richard Garriott's Journey to the Deeps? No, you know, we didn't actually take a film crew with us on that one. And um, 
Uh, you know, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, I was the 483rd person to leave the Earth. So it's on the one hand, it's a small number, but it's not an it's not a super small number. Um, right. Uh, the uh, and obviously people have been going to space for 50 years, but uh, but for going to the deep, um, you know, the the first submarine that went to the bottom was called the Trieste and it carried uh, Don Walsh and Jacques Picard. Don Walsh is a friend of mine here at the Explorers Club. Uh, mm -hmm. Only 20 years ago, the second vehicle made it to the bottom, and that was carrying James Cameron, the filmmaker. Uh, oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. then, uh, and then, and then there's only been one other vehicle that's made it to that depth, and that's the vehicle I went in, which is called Limiting Factor, built by now friend of mine, uh, Victor Vescovo. And so uh, he can now make repeated dives into the full ocean depth anywhere on the planet. And so I became oh, the wow. 15th person to make it to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So uh, obviously that's a, that's a much smaller list. <laughs> yeah. Like, what were you feeling? That had to be, like, simultaneously mind-blowing... Uh, nerve-wracking like what what were you feeling when you reached the bottom well, like, what was well, that moment like well what's fascinating is you know being in a submarine and being in a space capsule are, are quite similar in the sense of mm -hmm. it's you know you're in a capsule in both cases and um and the life support things issues are basically the same scrub co2 add oxygen um keep the pressure you know uh, close to one atmosphere um, but, you know, in a spacecraft, you know, the hard part is getting off the gravity well of the Earth. So it takes this giant rocket to push the capsule into space. Right. Uh, in the case of going to the deep, the capsule itself is subjected to a thousand atmospheres of pressure. You know, a, a, a space capsule only has to keep in one atmosphere of pressure, you know, 32 pounds per square inch. And so the, a space capsule is not much thicker than a Coke can. Um, on the other hand, to go to the deep, you have to keep out over a thousand times atmospheric pressure. And so the vehicle oh. is nine centimeters thick of titanium, you know, wow. into a perfect sphere. And, uh, and even with that, it still is crushed by about half a centimeter. And so I put up a little, you know, digital tape measure on one side that we, you know, kept running as we got down to the bottom and showed that in fact, it does get shorter by about a centimeter, uh, you know, wow. half a centimeter. And so, you know, you're just going like, yep, if, if this goes bad, this is going to go really bad, really fast. Bad. And, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, uh, engineering is pretty reliable. So, uh, uh, you know, things went well. Oh, that is so awesome. Yeah, I remember following that on Twitter uh, pretty closely. And um, it was just wild seeing, like, the, the adventure itself kind of unfold and, and, you know, when you all finally came back, it was just like, I think a, a lot of people that follow you were just like, ah, collective sigh of relief. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, but uh, but there's always lots more fun things to do. You know, I was actually meant to be, I don't know if you, you know, my exploration hero is a guy named Ernest Shackleton and an expedition. Yes, they found endurance. <laughs> and uh, that's both exciting, but also I'm a, I'm a little bit sad because I was actually meant to be on that expedition. And uh, oh, no. sadly, uh, as COVID restrictions to the number of people on board the ship, uh, you know, came out, you know, I got, I got, my, my position got bumped. Oh man, that's a bummer. I've been following that, that whole thing on a uh, history hit TV, like following Dan Snow's, uh, documentary of it. And I just remember when the news broke last week, it was like, oh my God, they actually found it. Like how often do you, you see that like on a documentary where they're following, or looking for something like this, and they actually find it. I thought that was really, really wild. But yeah, Shackleton is just a hero. Yeah, and so, <clears throat> yeah, we were actually. I'm, I'm here at the Explorers Club right now, and I'm president of the Explorers Club, and uh, up here in New York. 
and we were actually sitting around going, okay, well, what's the next big find? And the right. one that has still eluded people uh, who have spent a lot of time and money chasing is uh, Amelia Earhart's airplane that you know is lost. Ah. So there is still another big one out there that has yet to be found. But uh, I, I know I know people around here are working on it, so we'll see. Oh, that is wild. That is wild. You you were talking earlier, you know, about your your game, you know, your game career, and then and starting out, you know, in programming and development that kind of fueled this this thirst for exploration. When did you realize like that that was your, you know, your avenue to to create and and eventually use that to get you know elsewhere? Where was that first moment, if you can remember, where you're like, I can do oh, no. this. This can oh. be a thing. Yeah, well, so what's interesting about it is, of course, I go back to literally the beginning of the industry. I mean, truly. And and so when I started making games, you know, I was making them, you know, I, I wrote five or six years of simple little, you know, games for myself, you know, before any were published. And mm -hmm. even the first one that got published, a Calabeth, um, you know, wasn't written to be published. It was just another one that I was just doing for my friends. And, right. and, and so when, when a publisher called me up and said, Hey, we'd like to distribute it across the country. I was like, well, that's fun. So sure. Of course. And, uh, you know, and the first royalty check I received was about triple my father's income as an astronaut. And so oh, wow. you know, we were like, going like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Maybe I should make another one of these. And so, <laughs> but it wasn't until really about Ultima two, uh, in fact, it was pretty much explicitly Ultima two when I was at school, I was still attending the university of Texas. And as my income level was going up, my grade point average was going down. And, uh, and so, you know, it was clear that one of these two things, you know, had to end. And, and I really, frankly, wasn't that interested in, you know, completing my degree. And I absolutely was interested in continuing to make games. And so I had this, you know, you know heart to heart, you know, talk with my parents that I thought was going to go badly. Um, you mm. know, about, hey, I'm thinking about dropping out of school to go play games for a living. And uh, and when I did, you know, they were like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, this is a you know, the opportunity right now is is so vast that, of course, it's the right thing to do for now. Uh, you know, but when this windfall ends, when this computer gaming thing runs its you know, course and you mm -hmm. know, things settle down to make it more like a mature, normal business. Well, then you can go back to school, finish your degree and get a real job. And you know, <laughs> of course, that never happened. But uh, but it but it was but it was really sort of right around there. Ultima two is sort of when I kind of went. Wait a minute, I really I don't need to. I don't you know I, this is a career. You know this is this is a completely valid way to make a living. This is an industry that is now mm -hmm. growing uh, that is not just going to wink out and uh, you know disappear. Uh, this is a, a permanent new thing. It's it's incredible to me that, you know, your parents had such great foresight to encourage that. I mean, you, you hear stories all the time where, you know, back in that day, people thought this was going to be something that, you know, quickly disappeared and not something to bet, you know, the farm on. But because you started so early, you really achieved a lot of firsts. I mean, I, I've done some reading and I've, I've kind of been able to verify it, but not sure. But like, Acalabeth was the first computer role-playing game that was published and commercially sold, right? I believe that's the case, yeah. And yeah, then, and um, like... Uh, and then it goes, yeah, then I would go on and say, um, uh, you know, Ultima 2, you know, it was really the first published game in a box. Definitely the first mm -hmm. wagon at like a cloth map. You know, Ultima 4 introduced the word Avatar, which has now become ubiquitous. Um, yeah. 
Ultima Online not only was the first massively multiplayer game, but also coined the term MMO or MMORPG. Um, the uh, Ultima Online is also the first place you saw, you know, limited edition digital objects selling for you know large amounts of money, and you know that's yeah, I'm right. on the precursor of NFTs. And uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so yeah, so we, I, I feel really lucky that we did get the chance to kind of set standards. And and what I find funny about some of those standards we set is how many of them have gone way outside of games, uh, and people have lost sort of the history. And so let me let me tell you one of those that I that I, I happen to to uh, think is is pretty funny. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know I don't know if you um, are for, for familiar with the term shard in context oh, yeah. of a server farm, a duplicate of a server set of data. Atlantic and, all the way, baby. Yes. And so, uh, <laughs> so what's funny is, uh, you know, I meet people who have never been involved in games at all, but are people that do databases, global databases. And they'll have, yep. a, they'll have a database in Europe and a database in the United States, and they keep them synchronized, and they call those two synchronized uh, server sets for, for short ping times, uh, they call them shards. And I'm going like, yep. well, do you know where that name comes from? And they're going like, no, not at all. And I'm going, well, it really comes from Ultima Online. And, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I explained that you know, when we first were doing Ultima Online, we didn't expect to have multiple servers. We thought we were just making one world that would hold about 10,000 people in it, 10,000 active users, which would mean 1,000 at a time playing. And, <laughs> but the game, it would be, once we did the beta test, it became so obvious that we were going to need multiple servers it, that was good in the sense of the game selling a lot, but I found it fictionally bad because I was going like, I didn't want, if you started in a new world, that that meant you wouldn't see your friends in the other worlds, and that meant that this world would evolve differently than another server set. And so right. I made a piece of fiction that goes back to Ultima 1, where, you know, Mondain, the evil wizard, you know, uh, was, he, was, he, was, uh, he was immortal due to the existence of a gem, magical gem of immortality, and he shattered the, the way you killed him in oh, Ultima 1 right. was destroying the Gem of Immortality, which broke it into shards. And each of those shards took a copy of the world as it was at that moment. And so even though the metaverse or the multiverse that you were playing in for Ultima Online was separate shards, there in theory, those shards could be reunited and simplified back to into a single playing playable world. And so that was, a, that was the fiction that I set up to make myself feel okay about the, <laughs> the multiple realities. And so that's where the word shard came from. And now it's used in databases all over the world with no one having any idea where the word came from. And it's really a piece of Ultima fiction that I wrote in high school. That is, that is so funny. My, uh, my manager and I were, were talking about UO the other day and just how big of a a formative moment that was for us in gaming. Like I'm, I'm approaching my fourth decade. So I was here to experience a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that, you know, you created and, and the classic game creators at the time. But I remember when, when I was in the, I think it was the beta for UO. And this is going back quite a few years. There was nothing quite like this at the time where like the closest single player experience I had to this was Ultima seven, where the world felt alive and I remember and this this might be my mind playing tricks on me, but I think initially in Ultima Online there was meant to be this like ecosystem of like animals that would uh like actually have a population and like did I remember it? Like the players no, made correct. them go extinct? No, you're <laughs> no, you're quite correct. And so uh but let me tell you the story of that because it's a it's sort of a cautionary tale for game developers since. Um which is 
you know, we we thought, you know, and by the way, I, I love your reference to Ultima Seven because that really was our target. Ultima Seven was the the best realized virtual oh, world, so breathing world that 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 we did. So it's still one of the one of the ones I reflect on the most positively. And and for Ultima Online, we said, okay, you know, we're not going to be able to create quest lines fast enough to keep everybody busy. So we need some form of automatic quest generation. And so our our approach to that was to do a self-sustaining virtual ecology. And so what we meant by that and what we implemented and was implemented during the beta and even during the launch, but you'll you'll see what happened here. Um, so in the beta, we made it to where um, grasslands, the actual tile that was grass, produced a vegetation uh, item effectively that herbivores that were spawned in the world would consume. And so if you turn this on, uh, herbivores would would multiply across the globe and generally fill the grasslands to the maximum capacity of those grasslands to feed them. And then we introduced uh, carnivores, and the carnivores would spawn maybe up in the mountains or something. The wolves we'll call it we'll call it wolves and sheep in this case, but we had even more than just these two. But they were good examples. <clears throat> and the wolves would come down out of the mountains looking for meat. Uh, they would find the uh, the sheep. Uh, and they would eat the sheep down to uh, you know below the maximum they could in the grasslands, uh, and they, but they would find a balance because if the wolves ate all the sheep, then they would never anything to eat, and the wolf population would die down, and so those would self balance. And then we said, okay, now if we let players come in and they kill off some of the deer and sheep and other herbivores, then those wolves will go farther looking for food, which might include into the town, and they'll start eating the villagers. And then the villagers will be going, help, help, the wolves are attacking. Hey, players, here's a quest for you to go protect us from the wolves that in fact are coming in, maybe because you hunted all the deer out. And, um, and so the players would you know, either help repopulate the deer and or you know, go hunt the wolves. And we thought, and when we operated this ourselves in a playtest environment with like six players in the game total, this worked great. And so we were very proud of our, of our simulated ecology and its ability to, to spawn quests. And then when we put it out, we launched it, when you suddenly have hundreds of thousands of players running around, is they actually kill off all the wolves and all the sheep so fast that the virtual ecology has no time to operate. And, and we, there was literally no level of spawning we could crank up that would allow the virtual ecology to take root. And so literally no one noticed or cared that we'd put all this time and effort into a virtual ecology because the ecology was just overrun by the, you know, by players. And, and so after, you know, maybe a year of trying to figure out a way to make it better, make it, make it do its job in a new or better way, we ultimately gave up and ripped it out. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of time and effort spent on something that players never noticed or cared about. Did, oh uh, did you ever find like players surprised you in other ways that were unexpected? Oh, all the time. Uh, you know, like uh, one of my favorites is um, uh, uh, in the early days, especially, I would always jump into the uh, help queue to, to watch, you know, what, pe what were people having problems with? And, um, uh, and, and, and one of them was, you know, there was this, uh, we, we had a real problem of the, the more sophisticated older players uh, or, you know, more uh, experienced players would prey on a lot of the younger players. 
And a lot of that was in kind of humorous, funny ways. Like, for example, people would learn that um, uh, since the roofs would pop off of buildings as you got close, got inside of them, they could do things like wait. They could go to the bank. The 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 predator players could put a teleporter just inside the bank that teleported you out into the woods. And so, if you were coming to the bank with a bunch <laughs> of treasure, you know, you'd walk into the bank. The roof would pop off, but at that exact moment, you'd be standing in teleporter. So you'd be teleported via teleporter you never saw before out into the woods, away from the protection of the guards of the city, and people would clobber you and take all your money. You know, and so we're going like, okay, that's kind of funny, but you know, we'll, we can fix that technically. And then there were others where you know people would complain that you know they were just being suckered by by people you know talking to them and convincing them to trust them and go come out in the woods with me I won't hurt you and then of course they gank them and and so there was a woman who was saying look here I'm a I'm a new player somebody keeps stealing all my stuff you know if I can't even play this game for five minutes I'm gonna you know take my money and go home and and I was going like okay I'm gonna go help this woman and so <clears throat> I teleport in and. She tells me how, yeah, this is the, like the fifth time she's restarted. Um, every time, you know, she uh, walks out of the town, you know, somebody basically zips by on the screen so fast she can't even see them or target them or do anything, and um, uh, uh, and and you know steals all her stuff and then kills her. And this is just not fun. I said, okay, well, I am Lord British. I'm going to escort you out of town <laughs> myself, and so you will be safe. I will be here for you. And so we walk out of the town together, and right as soon as we get outside the boundary of town, someone zips by so fast that they must have macroed something in a way that I really had no idea how they pulled this off. They zipped by so fast, I couldn't target them to see who they were. They stole all this woman's stuff again, and then ran off the other side of the map. And so I went to this woman and say, stay here, I'll be right back. And so I teleported ahead, waited there for this person to come on screen, froze them while they were on screen, appeared in front of them as Lord British and said, how dare you, thief and scoundrel, you know, uh, rob from this poor you know, <laughs> player. Um, you know, uh, if you do that again, I'm going to, you know, ban you from the game. Uh, let this be a lesson to you. And they were like, you know, I'm so sorry, Lord British. I'm sorry, Lord British. I promise I'll never do it again. I said, okay, let that be a lesson. So I go back to the woman. I give her all her stuff back. And while I'm standing there, zip, same person comes by going the opposite direction. And I'm going like, wait, 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 stay here. Hang on, hang on. I go teleport in front of him. I freeze him to the ground. I said, look, hey, that's two strikes, dude. You know, don't, don't do it again. I really am going to, you know, ban you from the game. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It was just, I thought it was funny. I said, it wasn't funny. Don't do it. And um, yeah. he'll get his stuff, take it back. And here comes a person a third time. Third time person comes by. I freeze him. My peers, Lord British. And I said, okay, that's it. Three strikes. I'm now going to ban you from the game. And the person goes, wait, 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 wait. He said, wait, Richard Garriott. He said, look, you created the rules of this game. You put the feature in the game that allows me to do thieving activities. I am role-playing a thief, just like you are role-playing Lord British. And, uh, you know, and if you didn't want me to be able to steal stuff from people, why the hell did you put the rules in the game that allow me to steal things from people? <laughs> you know, of course, if Lord British appears before you, I'm going to swear that I'm not going to do it again. But I'm a freaking thief. So, of course, I'm going to still do it. And I went, oh, man, he's right. And and so I then sat back and went, oh, on the one hand, I can't let him prey on this woman because, you know, we need new new players to be able to play. So I teleported him to the far side of the planet. And so that, so that at least he couldn't prey on this particular woman at this particular moment. I then went and brought the stuff back to the woman, made sure she had to find time at least for this particular day of her life. 
And then the team, as a team, we went back and sat down and said, you know, what do we do about this? How do we, how do we both let people have the fun that we think that this sort of behavior might be, but how do we also protect the, you know, the newer players from being becoming fodder and leaving the game before they really learn how to use it? I remember, like that, you bring up such a great example. I think of what made UO very special because, like, at the very, especially the early days, there was really nothing separating you know, good role-playing behavior and, like, somebody role-playing an evil character. You, you like, venturing outside of town, as it probably would have been in, you know, a medieval fantasy era, is not safe to do alone. Um, but when you got a group together and you got some friends, you could do some really interesting things. I remember we kind of got caught in a, uh, a bit of a scandal by pretending to be, uh, Britannian tax collectors. I think, if I remember, the guy, the guy that ran our guild called us the Britannian Tax Collectors Guild. And we would just walk up to random players and be like, you know, we've we've looked at the transactions from your vendor and and how much gold you've taken into your house or castle, and you owe us uh, blah 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 in taxes. And sometimes people would give it to us, and and I'll never forget it. We we got we got reported, and we said, look, like I, I remember uh, sitting uh, like talking, you know, typing out to this person that like we were facing a ban, and I I remember saying like. We never represented that we were, you know, employees of Origin or anything like that. We're just, we are role-playing that we are tax collectors and we're actually lying. And people were, you know, just giving us money. And I I felt bad because I remember they, like, they were flooding the boards like, How dare you collect taxes, Origin? This makes no sense. And I, I remember we finally just kind of stopped doing it because it was... I felt like we were towing some line, but no other game allowed for that. Like, I, yeah, I don't and, know. And, UO and was so special. Yeah, and so, no, I, I, I quite agree. And, um, you know, and what's unfortunate is as magical as those times were, it's been very hard to consider how to reproduce it. And um, yeah. because, because part of its greatest success also became part of its limitation. And in that... Um, you know, for every person who has one of these Wild West stories that are fun, like what you're saying, I mean, you weren't, you really weren't, I mean, people were doing it voluntarily, right? It was a, but, 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 right. you were, but you were sort of acting like a scammer, you know, in the sense <laughs> of, uh, you know, you were doing some fishing and people would, you know, pH fishing and, uh, and people would occasionally pay it because they believed it, you know, it's it, like, it, you know, mal ransomware, et cetera. And so, uh, uh, and so the person on who's on the receiving end, of course, doesn't think there's that much fun. And and there's usually more people on the receiving end than on the doling it out end, kind of. Yeah, for sure. And and so and so you know that made it that really did make it to where you know, we sort of had a, a a peak hardcore audience that the the general public that weren't this savvy, um, you know, lightning fingered. Uh, uh, manipulators <laughs> the system, uh, you know, had a much harder time, you know, really embracing it deeply. And then, but so, it, but, it, and as we tried to make it safer, that killed the fun off of the hardcore player. So it, it's a really difficult thing to balance how to do that, yeah. you know, and, uh, and keep everybody happy. <clears throat> yeah. It, I mean, uh, we wound up playing well after like the Trammell of Faluka split. I've, I've got, we played that for years, but, um, I, I'd, I'd love to go back a little bit, because uh, uh, we've started talking about Ultima 7, which is absolutely one of my favorites. Um, how, 
you you really I, I remember the the game itself really pushed the technology for the time to the point where I think you had like implemented your own memory manager uh, to get this to work. But like, what what for you made Ultima Seven something special that really separated it from anything else? Well, the yeah, well, let me touch on the the Voodoo memory management system. Yes, yeah, so let me let me mention that. Then I'll that's what it was. Yeah, the I'll, I'll talk about the game design. What I thought was special about it, but yeah, the this was in the early days of the PC standard, so the Microsoft Windows PC standard, and um, uh, and the operating system, which was probably still DOS at the time, might have been an early version of Windows. Um, but the, the you know everyone's computer had a minimum of a megabyte of memory in it, but the operating system could only address the first 640k, and so one fourth of the memory of the computer that everyone had was not usable because the operating system didn't allow it to be addressed, and so. To, so we said, look, you know, with you know, with a with a twenty five percent bonus of of memory, uh, which might even be a one third bonus of memory once you get the operating system stuff that everybody has to have, you know, uh, out of the way, um, we could cram a lot more into the game than most people could do without it. And so we wrote a hack to DOS to allow us to page in that last section of RAM uh, on demand, and and it worked great. The only problem is, is that Microsoft independently later released either Windows or whatever their next operating system was, and they fixed it themselves to where it was addressable. And that actually broke our memory manager. And so anybody that already was using our memory manager, anybody that bought the game prior to the new operating system, suddenly the game didn't work. And that kind of happened during the middle of its life cycle as a, as a published game. So it actually caused us trouble, and we took a lot of heat for, you know, this crazy voodoo memory management system that suddenly doesn't work, and we're going like, well, it did when we it did when we published it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not our fault. It's Microsoft. But the thing I think that made the game special was this singular devotion to the completeness of the simulation of the reality that we were in, and that goes way beyond kind of the roles and responsibilities of characters, and it goes way beyond even the fact that every character in the world had its own life cycle. You know, I mean, they would wake up in the morning and go to work and in the afternoon, go to the pub, in the evening, come back and have dinner so with their cool. families, etc. But we also made them to where, um, you know, the, the good guys weren't always good, in, they weren't infallible, and bad guys weren't always intractably bad. And, <clears throat> and we made it to where this, the evil character, the Guardian, um, it was an, you know, instead of just waiting for you at the end to kill you when you, or to fight you when you became powerful, he was an active member of the plot. And so if you would, you know, if you would manage to turn a, a, one of the members of the, you know, the, the bad guys to your side and the Guardian found out about it, which, of course, we helped make sure happened, was always the case, the Guardian would then go and kill that person. And, and so we made, oh, you, yeah. we made you feel bad for <laughs> convincing somebody to feel to do good. And uh, and likewise, you know, someone who is fundamentally good might ultimately be bribable to turn to bad. And so we the 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 richness of not just the simulation, but the but the uh, the the way the simulation could change based upon your interaction with it, I think was it was far better than any other game um, before, you know, in many cases since. 
And uh, and but but also it's an inter- it's an interesting case of of the it's one of the three games that I think fits the following um, uh, importance, which is I think if you look at Ultima Four, Ultima Seven, and Ultima Online, which to me are my artistically most successful games, it's interesting to note that in all three of those cases, my family, uh, the company, and my employees all thought I was making a terrible mistake by pursuing it. And, oh, wow. Uh, in the case of Ultima 4, it's because I was making this goody-goody two-shoes games that was going to you know, judge yeah. you as to whether you were doing good. And that was right on the heels of Ultima 3 being the first game we published as Origin. So it was the first time I got fan mail. And that fan mail all said, the way I love to play your game is by murdering all of the town folk and stealing from all the shops. <laughs> and I was about to go, uh-uh, that's not cool. You're supposed to be the good guy. And so that's when I came up with the word avatar, that this is you in that body. It's not your evil sidekick. This is you in that form, in that body inside this my virtual world. So if you do good or bad deeds, you, Earth human, are responsible for those good <laughs> or bad deeds. And I forced you to live the goody-goody-two-shoes life. And my, my family was like, Richard, this is stupidity. People have been writing you, telling you how much fun they're having being the basically the bad guy, and you're about to force them to be the good guy. No one's going to like this. And I was like, you know, I really feel this is the right thing to do. And and it, Ultima Four became the number first number one best selling game in the series. And the same thing was true for Ultima Seven. People thought it is incredibly expensive to do that level of simulation. And um, you know, most most games, you know, even, even lots of really great games. You know, I think you know. If you look at a lot of the you know, Blizzard games like Diablo or World of Warcraft, you know they are masters of the challenge and reward cycle. But it is a largely sure. level grinding, right? You know, you get a little stronger, you start strike, you fight things that are a little stronger, you get a little better treasure, and you have a yeah. level gated fence around you that lets you open up the world as you level up. But but it's really the same game mechanic used throughout the game experience. And uh, and here I was doing this simulation that required an immense amount of hand. Tweaking at at and it had a very large you know area of the, of the work, so it was it was super time consuming and expensive, and everybody thought this is just stupidity. No one's going to care. And uh, and again, Ultima Seven I think was one a big one on the map. And then of course with Ultima Online, you know the same sort of thing where people are going like, no one's ever made a massively multiplayer game before. There's there's no there's no way to predict that it has any sales. So we don't have faith that it will sell because no one's ever made one that did sell. And we were like, you know, that those days are gone. The World Wide Web is here. Uh, now is the time to do it. And we ultimately did. And, and it became the fastest selling PC game in Origin and EA history at the time. Yeah, that level of foresight's incredible, especially like jumping into pretty much unknown waters at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, UO becomes this this massive hit. Like, when, when did y'all realize like UO was such a huge success? Um, right with the release of the beta test, and uh, but but we sort of we knew that our detractors were wrong from the very earliest time. When we built a little prototype for ourselves, and that prototype really was just a you know in-house game on our local area network, where you had a character running around on a map, and we had basically what I call the the football. We had an object that one person had that the others didn't. And as you ran around in this game, all you had to do was bump into somebody else, and then you had the football. And then you'd all run away, and that person would then run away from everybody else, and people would chase them down, and with whoever bumped into them next would get the football. And that was it. But that was already so fun, and there wasn't even a game there. 
Yeah, but it was really, <laughs> but it was already the first of its kind, right? I mean, people there were there were not people doing real time, you know, uh, direct uh, engagement across the internet before this, and, yeah. and but even that little test made us go, this is going to work. It's going to be a great game. People are going to have a blast, and uh, and so that's when we kind of pushed to get it going. But then the you know in this case the electronic arts you know sales machine got involved and said, well, there's no sales comparables out there, so we're going to tell you it's not going to sell. No matter what it is you ship. Oh, that's so funny. And who turned out to be right there? That was all you guys. Mm-hmm. I, I'd love to um, shift with the time we have left to your, you know, your, your exploration. Sure. Um, and, you know, this adventurous life you took after um, game development. And, like... Did, is that something you always knew you wanted to do and this was a path to it, or is this something that you came to kind of later in your game development career, or is this something you wanted to do from day one? Wanted to do from day one. I mean, uh, my early childhood memories of, like, family vacations, like, uh, you know, we did the classic, I mean, literally with a station wagon, we packed the family into it, four kids, two parents. We pulled behind the station wagon a pop-up camper and we did the, you know, around the United States and into Canada tour when I was, you know, in junior high or so. And, and even on that, <clears throat> on that little family vacation or big family vacation, you know, I would do things like gather matchbooks out of the cafes we would stop in to get, you know, you know, food. And then if there was a cave or a culvert or anything else that I could go explore, I would get out that pack of matches or, uh, you know, fistfuls of packs of matches and go explore myself you know, with match light. And, um, <laughs> uh, and, and from those little beginnings, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I've been rock climbing, rappelling, exploring uh, caves, especially in those early days, um, you know, as, as much as I could. And the only thing that's really changed is sort of the scope of them. And, um, uh, and so the biggest things I could do Actually, prior to prior to joining the Explorers Club that with, that I'm talking to you from right now, and I happen to be the president of, you know, the Explorers Club was 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 uh, formed in 1904 by the the early heroic oh, wow. age explorers that were looking to you know try to find the North Pole, South Pole, you know, the top of Everest, the surface of the Moon, bottom of the deep, and um, and when I joined this in the 90s. Um, suddenly I met, met like-minded entrepreneurs who really wanted to go to the most extreme places possible. And so we began to actually build companies to open up those frontiers. And so I helped build companies oh, wow. that opened up the ocean depths. I helped build companies that operate on the interior of Antarctica. If you want to go meteorite hunting or go to the South Pole, uh, I missed Ooh. out on one of my partners did the first nuclear icebreakers to the North Pole. Uh, now that's not uncommon, but, uh, uh, but, but, but the point is that allowed me to go do all those things. And it also allowed me, you know, by virtue of helping to build the XPRIZE Zero-G Corp and Space Adventures, it allowed me to be one of the first private citizens to fly into space. And so um, it allowed me to, you know, live on the International Space Station for two weeks. And again, that's all through things we nucleated or grew, you know, right here in the Explorers Club. Oh, man. So, so kind of along with that, I mean, obviously you're, you're starting up all these companies, but it, like it, even as, you know, kind of on a global level, like we're seeing a lot more commercial companies and even, even countries themselves getting more involved with 
exploration and more specifically like getting into space what what do you see the future of space flight and it, be it travel uh, maybe within the next century what what do you think that's going to look like well um, I'm a little biased in the sense of uh, uh, I've been at commercial space now for a long time and I have investments in a number of the uh, companies but but I am a huge Elon Musk fan uh, and uh, sure. and, a, and an investor in all of his uh, companies that I at least that I can figure out a way to invest in, and <laughs> uh, and so my largest uh, personal holding is in SpaceX, and nice. uh, um, and I just two weeks ago was down in Boca Chica, Texas, crawling around in their manufacturing and launch facilities there, and you know it is incredibly impressive their new Starship, uh. and and when they talk about the fact they that they believe. Uh, you know, that they'll be able to get it down to, you know, something like a couple thousand of low thousands of dollars to go point to point anywhere on Earth and only in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to literally go visit another planet. You know, the the you know, they're targeting, you know, two orders of magnitude of cost reduction. And um, and what they're doing down there is really to build a rocket that, you know, that is so reusable that they can catch it out of the air with their little chopstick tower and uh, refuel it and launch it the next day. So literally basically zero refurbishment, just like a, a, a passenger airliner. And it's oh, incredible. And if you get down to passenger airliner reusability, you know, it's, it's, if you look at any other form of transport, cars, planes, boats, trains, all the others where you just go refill it with the tank, fill up the tank of gas and keep going. They all cost to operate only about three times the fuel. So if you put 100 bucks of gas in your car, you spend another 200 bucks on depreciation and maintenance. And that's true for cars, boats, planes, and trains. But not rockets. Rockets are more than 100 times right. that right mm. now because generally you're throwing away a heck of a lot of it, if not all of it, um, on its maiden voyage. And, um, and so if they really get true reusability in this way, then they're right. Those, those prices are where you get. You see yourself taking that's a return awesome. trip to uh, to space? <laughs> Unquestionably. I mean, that's really why I put the money into it in nice. the first place. And I, I made the investment not to make money. I made the investment so I can go. Sure. Sure. Yeah, what was, uh, just just speaking of that, I mean, again, I, I've probably watched uh, Man on a Mission 10 times now because it was just such an incredible journey to follow as you, know, as you trained and, and went to the space station. What were some of your favorite moments on the space station? Well, uh Actually, I have one particular favorite that I think is is uh, fun to mention, or sort of my my it's, it's my strangely proud moment was um, you know everyone who goes to fly on the space station has to train on every piece of equipment you might need to interact with, and that's right. uh, among other reasons. It's uh, first, it's a safety issue, but it's also an issue that you know you don't want to have to tap another busy professional on the shoulder and go, hey, I forgot how to operate the radios. Could you help me out here? Right. And uh, because I would take time and you know, away from another really expensive, you know, uh, uh, experiment or activity <laughs> that's going on aboard the space station. And so when we got up there on the space station, you know, one of the more complicated systems is, in fact, the radios. And it's not that using a radio to call the ground on its own is particularly complicated because it's not. Um, it's basically the same as a ham radio uh, that anybody can get a license for, you know, on the Internet these days. But the intercom system that connects to it is a bunch of interconnected panels from every module of the space station. The space station has been built over 20 years. And so those intercom modules aren't all the same. 
And so there's older ones and newer ones that are similar, but have some changes. <clears throat> and so if you're going to use the radios and the intercoms, there are places where they, they bridge between each other that are particularly complicated. And if you, if you just switch one switch inadvertently, you can sort of shut down the communications through the stack, much less to the ground. And even though I had learned this very well, my crewmates came to me right you know, soon after we got on the space station and said, hey, Richard, you know, you're going to be here for two weeks and then you're leaving. We're going to be here for six months. And so <laughs> please don't change the configuration of the radios because if you did and then you leave and we don't know what you changed, it might take us a long time to figure it out. And I went, <laughs> that, actually makes, that actually makes perfect sense. I will not touch the radios. And you know, I'll, I'll, if I need a reconfiguration, I'll have you do it so you, you know what was changed. And uh, you know, uh, you know, halfway through my flight, I was you know, walking or floating through the hallway I saw my crewmates staring at one of these panels that was the, the bridge had failed on, and they were trying to figure out how to reconfigure it to bring the radio systems back online. And so I just paused and I was watching them their deliberate, and I realized what the problem was. And so I actually just reached over their shoulder, reached the panel, flipped one switch, everything was now back in working order again. And my, oh, crewmates wow. looked, my crewmates looked at me and went, you know, we told you about don't touch the radios. Forget that. Touch them all you want. We <laughs> there you understand the the configuration issues. And so, uh, to me, I mean, it's a weird little tiny moment, but it's one of those things where I'm going like, yeah, you know, I was really a useful team member. I knew, you know, I I trained hard. I learned well, and uh, I actually had some use beyond uh, my own my own uh, you know little uh, set of experiments to be working on. That is so awesome. Like, yeah, I mean, you you really feel like you know you're not, you're not just up there as a tourist like you've you know you've contributed you're running experiments and you've helped solve a problem which that's amazing like that is such a cool thing to be able to walk away from that with and um oh wow no that's just that's a really cool story do for for sea exploration now i i you know as as we're i know we're coming down to the 10 minute mark here but with, with the you know when when did you decide like that was the next thing you wanted to do? Was that something always in the works, or is this? You know, no, I would actually I... say it was opportunistic. Um, uh, so one of my partners in like um, uh, the X Prize Zero G Corp and Space Adventures, there was the, you know the, the for us the big prize was space, but that took a long time. That took right. you know, twenty years to figure it out, and <clears throat> and so during that twenty years, we're still doing other things, and so. The one of my co-founders said, "Hey, I have figured out a way to charter these Russian submersibles, Mir One and Mir Two, and the first place we got to go is down to the Titanic." And this was literally at the same time James Cameron was getting ready to film the movie Titanic, and huh. using these exact same submersibles. So if you've seen the movie, you've seen the tools we used, you've seen the ship we were on, you've seen the captain, the boat, the same, it's all the same. And um, and so I was like, "Yeah, I'm all you know, let's do it." And so, um, uh, so that was my first deep submersible trip. Obviously, it's a pretty cool one to do first. And, Hell yeah. And then you sort of had the bug. And so then we said, hey, well, let's go. To, there's another interesting thing to go do. Let's go down to hydrothermal vents where these, you know, these creatures are living in high-pressure, toxic, anaerobic conditions that might have been the earliest life on the planet. So I'm going like, yeah, let's go do that. And then after we, after we did that the first time, you know, it was... 
so obviously of scientific instrument interest that I called my dad and I actually took my dad out on the next time. We made another set of dives, this time with my father and a bunch of genetic researchers, and we brought up, you know, extremophile life forms and bacteria and, you know, began to full out, you know, not, we actually moved, we, we found at the time the highest surviving temperature bacteria that had been known. So people had already gone over 100 degrees Celsius, you know, previously, but we moved it from like 105 Celsius to 115 Celsius. And, and now it's oh, actually wow. higher. But we made, you know, serious, real scientific contributions with these dives. And and then I began to go, well, you know, let's, uh, then we went and did some treasure hunts. And then we did, uh, uh, you know, most recently this dive down to the Mariana Trench. So so that's sort of been a growing passion. Um, but it was one, it was opportunistic. The, the kickoff was opportunistic. That's incredible. Um. Just thinking out loud here. Uh, Nick, you want to take this next one? This is the question that's itching me. Yeah, so it's like obviously space, deep sea, North Pole, South Pole. What's next for you, you know, coming up? You know, like anything you could talk about or just like something that you're, you're working towards? Uh, well, of course, I was supposed to be on this um, nor, uh, this endurance dive trip, rats. Um, but, <laughs> uh, uh, but COVID hit another one that was probably hopefully just delayed, which is we were going to go to a little island called Pitcairn. The mutiny on the mutineers ended up. Um, I'm glancing over my shoulder here, where I've got my my wooden bounty model and my my wooden endurance model uh, on a shelf here behind me. So hopefully that won't come up. Uh, of course, I intend to go to Mars and hopefully take my family with me. My wife is not so interested, but I figured if I take the children, <laughs> she might come. Uh, but I think that's you know that's still a decade away probably. Um, but uh, only a decade, you think? Oh yeah, I think yeah, yeah, probably only a decade. Wow, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, Elon would say sooner than that, but um, you know, I'm hopefully being a little conservative by saying a decade. That's that's just awesome that like this this adventurous spirit just continues um, with all the incredible stuff that you've seen. That Pitcairn sounds really cool. I've done a lot of reading on Pitcairn Island, and they're kind of like this their own like community in a way that's just kind of grown independently of the almost the rest of the world uh, that it, do you plan on chronicling any any that trip in any fashion whether it's a book or uh... well i'm not sure we'll do a book but our purpose there uh, you know is well beyond just visiting i mean you know in theory anybody could visit there i mean they welcome guests but the reason we're taking an explorers club group down there is to do genetic research on the grave sites of the lineage starting with the original mutineers um you know it's oh, obviously wow. been a pretty pretty small gene pool you know only about 50 people uh currently live there uh, i think it's at most had two or three hundred people there and um uh, and a lot of the original grave sites now have like houses built on top of them and so uh you know we're gonna go there and you know try to dig up a lot of the old um uh texts and talk to the oldest people of, of what their earliest memories are and um you know do you know take up some genetic material in a lot of these grave sites to try to figure out you know who's buried where and who's related to who that sounds so fascinating yeah it's 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 a very interesting community from what i read about to where like they even almost have their own language it's a dialect but it's yeah. like very yeah. very unique yeah exactly in fact, I have a book Some, on the shelf Richard, I, about Pitcairnies, exactly what you're referring Pitcairnies. to. Pitcairnies? Yeah, I literally am looking Ooh. at a purple-covered purple book about the language, the unique uh, dialect of the Pitcairn survivors. Well, I know what's going next on my Kindle. 
Um, do you have anything right now that you're doing that you want to promote, whether it's uh, maybe an upcoming project or oh, well, actually, you know, yes, I'll, I'll just mention one thing here in our last couple of minutes, which is that um, you know, so MMOs now are so big and take so long. You know, I don't think I'm gonna you know, start and lead another uh, you know scale a uh, project of that scale. Uh, that being said, I think there's still now some. You know, we're finally to the point where. Uh, you know, even though Moore's Law still, in fact, I, I need kind of give a caveat here, which is, you know, one of the things I think happens with computers advancing so fast as they will have and will continue to do is it has tended to keep the simplest form of first-person shooters to be the most popular, you know, throughout most of the last few decades. And it's only during periods of stability of a platform did people tend to write deeper and deeper games more like Ultima 7. And, um, but we're now to the point, machines are now fast enough to where you know, writing the engine is no longer the challenge, uh, and even games that are truly retro in their graphical look are, are becoming popular again. Um, <clears throat> you don't have to have just all the best bells and whistles. Now people are looking for content. And uh, sure. and so I think there's some interesting new opportunities in, in game making. And uh, and so I've, had, I've been, you know, been contacted by a lot of people now that are looking at, you know, replacing databases with the blockchain uh, in order to blend together the you know what used to have to be done either with a big company funding it or using uh, uh, you know a, a Kickstarter or other ways of funding that ultimately then moves into the game funding itself if you use a blockchain basis and your funding mechanism is the same as your in-game economy ultimately uh, and uh, and so the point is I'm, 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 I'm signing up to help out on a few uh, uh, projects that are you know, role-playing games that also use some blockchain technologies as part of their funding mechanics. So we'll see how that goes. Those aren't ready to be announced yet, but those are things I'm getting involved in now. That is super fascinating. Um, I, I will say, you know, if and when you're ready to talk to, about those, uh, and as they take off, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah. Um, if you see a press but, release come out in the time in the next few months, uh, uh, just drop me a line again, and we'll we'll dig into it deeper. Thank, yeah, Absolutely. thank you so much, Richard. This has been a real privilege for me, um, and, and Nick, obviously. We really, really appreciate your time, and um, I, I can't wait to see what's next for you, because it always benefits the fans like us, no matter what it is. Well, thank you very much. It's kind. always I appreciate fun. It. It's been fun to get a chance to, uh, a, a rare opportunity to talk to people who are both interested in the exploration side and the gaming side, so uh, uh, fun for me, too, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. Take care, and we'll be watching. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good one.